I am so thankful for this privilege that I have to speak to you today, this May 3rd, 2020. I'm grateful to you, Jeff Matisich, our acting senior pastor, for giving me this opportunity today. And Jeff, I'm also really thankful for the text that you've assigned to me, because what we are coming to uh, today is the very final part of what many people call the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount preached by Jesus. We've been going through a series from this. It's found from Matthew 5 through 7. And this is the very end where Jesus really summarizes it and gives us the foundation for our lives. And I'm thankful to come to it because I think, I've come to think at least, that perhaps more than any other text in the entire New Testament, this is the passage of God's Word that really speaks to us about the kinds of things we're going through right now in our world. And you know what I'm talking about, don't you? This uh, global pandemic with this deadly virus that's doing so much damage. I think that Jesus is giving us the way that he would have us not only to survive times like this, but actually to, to, to thrive through them. Now, with that sort of provocative beginning, I hope you're ready to listen. The passage is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 24 to 29. And if you can, will you stand? Because we're going to be hearing today the words of Jesus. This is what he said. Jesus proclaimed, Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who built his house on sand. The rains came down. The storms rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And that was the end of Jesus' sermon. And then Matthew added this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And this is... The word of God. You may be seated. You may be wondering why I think that passage speaks into the situation that we are going through right now. Because after all, Jesus was talking about a storm instead of talking about a virus, a health concern. But I need to explain it to you. Because if you had lived in the ancient world, there was probably nothing that Middle Eastern people who lived in Jesus' day feared more than a great storm like the one that Jesus describes here in this story. Why? Because the fierce winds were mysterious to people. They didn't know the origin. They, they didn't know where it was coming from. Why were they afraid? Because the enemy was invisible. They didn't even see it coming. Suddenly it was on them. They didn't see it coming toward them. And suddenly it was doing its destruction. Perhaps most of all, it was uncontrollable. 
uh, none of the knowledge, none of the strategies, none of the weapons that they had back in their day even addressed this kind of an enemy of a storm. And when the storm occurred while they were at sea, or along, or lived along the sea, like the story that Jesus talked about here, it was even more terrifying for them. And I'll tell you why. It's not because Middle Eastern people were terrified by water. They were not. I mean, after all, fishing and, and transportation by boat, those were huge industries back in the ancient world. The reason was something else. It, it was not the water itself. It's what they thought might be under the water that they couldn't see. That, that, that frightened them so much because as, as you looked at it, they, they weren't able to do it. So once again, what was under that surface, they knew that there were powerful creatures there because sometimes they could see coming out of the water things like crocodiles and they knew they were strong and terrifying and they envisioned, the ancient people envisioned that there were other kind of creatures under the water too. They called them Leviathan. <laughs> Sometimes the, the old stories, the old horror stories, had the Leviathan right at the heart. And you can read about the Leviathan even in the Old Testament, in the book of Job, in the book of Psalms, and in the book of Isaiah. So when you put all that together, have you ever been in a situation in which the enemy that you were facing seemed to be awfully mysterious? You didn't know its origin. You didn't know its source. And not only mysterious, but invisible. You didn't quite know how it attacked you. And not only was it mysterious and invisible, it was seemingly uncontrollable with all of the current strategies and uh, weapons and even medicines seeming to prove ineffective. Now, you know as well as I do that that's the very way that people in our world are talking about this pandemic that we're going through. And really, it's into that kind of a situation in which Jesus told this story. And he told us so that what we should do is, envisioning, is envision two men that he would describe who went through that very same storm and how they were able to navigate it. One was and one was not. And I'd like you to put yourself in, into their shoes. Now, when you think about these men, if you had just seen them one day, you would have thought that they were a lot alike. Now, why do I say that? Uh, one, because both of them were building a house. Um, the word that Jesus used for house is the word oikos. And uh, that word for house had a rather broad range of meaning in Jesus' day. Uh, in first respect, he used the word house the very same way you and I do for the place where we live, that building that we are in. And I'll tell you, in that, it sort of expresses that deep longing that all human beings have always had and still have to have a place where you're able to reside that you call your, your home because nobody really wants to be homeless. They were trying to build that kind of a house. But that word for house was also used more broadly than that. It was used for the household. It was used for the family. And once again there, if it's used that way and Jesus was talking about that, he was talking about a universal longing for us to have a place to belong to, uh, a family where our marriage is strong, where our family is strong, where our marriage and family is not broken or hate-filled. They were trying to build that. And, and it was also used even in a bigger way than that. This word for house, oikios, was used not only for the house where you live and the family you're trying to build, but it was also sometimes used for the place of work, the career that you're trying to build. 
And I think that was largely because most of the businesses back in Jesus' day were, were family businesses. And in that respect, when you put all of those together, you can see that what Jesus is really saying in envisioning these men, you, you need to think about them. It's talking about them trying to build their lives. And that's not a bad thing to do whatsoever. So if you saw both of them, they were trying to build something that lasted, something that brought them happiness. Both of them were like that. Now, another way that they were similar, not only that they were trying to build their lives, but they were also trying to, uh, they, they were also, they looked like they were Christians. They looked like they were Christians because as you read it, you see two times, Jesus said that these were two men who listened to his teaching. He said it both in verse 24, he said it again in verse 26. So in other words, when Jesus was contrasting these two men, he wasn't saying, okay, this is the way that church type people live. And this is the way that people who aren't church type people live. He was talking about people who all looked like they were church type people. They would have read the Bible. They would have shown up at worship services. And if they could have, I can imagine they would have tuned in to the Lake Avenue Church online streamed program. They were people who listened to sermons because actually these words were being spoken in the middle of a sermon. So as you look through that, there were people who tried to build a house. They, they both looked like they were Christians. And of course, both of these men went through a storm. And I'll tell you, it was that, a storm that they went through that actually proved what these men were like inside. It, it proved, it demonstrated to them whether those things that they were living for were real and whether they were lasting. So right now, at the very beginning here, I want you to make note of this. Going through a storm or through a pandemic is one of the best ways that you can see what you are really made of. Or if I put it more accurately, you can see whether your faith in God is genuine when you go through a storm. And I want to say right now, and I'll say it again later, don't allow a storm to sweep through your life without allowing it to reveal to you what really matters to you. What it is that is at the very core of your being. Uh, so, in terms of external things, you have to see that both of these men were very similar. And I think their houses were too. In fact, my guess is that second man, the one who built his house, house up on the sand, I would guess his house was perhaps embellished more, more ornate because I would guess he spent more time on that part of the house, the external part of the house. And I say that because as you read through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and you look at a couple of the texts that Pastor Jeff preached earlier, you could see that there were groups of religious leaders who were just building the external things of their lives. Remember the, the people who, when they prayed, prayed loud and eloquently. And when they gave, they gave so that everybody could see it. And they wanted to make sure their name was on the building. It was all on the outside. And Jesus says, no, 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 start and build the inside. So I, as I look at these men, I can imagine that the outside looked awfully good. And yet, as you see, what happened is that what they were trying to build didn't really last. And when the storm came to the one who simply was building what was on the outside, it all just crashed. Now, 
when you, you read this story, and it talks about how a storm can make a, a house crash, I think we who live here in Southern California can understand that part of the message perhaps better than almost anybody else in the rest of the world. And, and you know why. Here in SoCal, we have all of these houses that are built on hillsides. And I'll tell you, when we go through those times, those seasonal times of the year, that we have uh, the fire season that comes, and after the fire season comes, then come the heavy storms. And you know what sometimes happens to some of those houses that are built on the hillsides here, don't you? Some of them just slide down the mountains to their ruin. Now, if, if you haven't remembered that that happens, I went uh, on Google and I found a picture of one and I have, could find so many. I'll show it to you right now and just look at this. That if you don't have the right kind of place that you build your house, then what's going to happen is that when the storm comes, it's, it's going to be shown to be seen built upon something that doesn't, doesn't really last. Uh, th this message about the importance of the foundation of a house is something that's become very personal to uh, Chris and me, and, and, and I'll tell you why. Because uh, uh, the house that we lived in for the majority of our time of being here in Southern California was a house that was built in the foothills of Pasadena. It was built on the hillside overlooking Eaton Canyon. When we sold that home, the first potential buyers were really, really concerned about whether, I'll show you a picture of that. You see it, I went on and found it. And it has that slope, you can't really see it. But the first buyers looked at that and they, they wondered whether when the storm would come, there would be a mudslide that would ruin the home. So they asked for a geotechnical engineer to come and look and see whether that house would be able to be stable when the storms would come into our area as they knew that they would. And when that geotechnical engineer came in, he said, look at this thing. This thing is going nowhere. And the reason why was it was built upon what is called a natural cut where it was built up on a granite bedrock with a slab over it so that the house that Chris and I lived in had been there 55 to 60 years. It had gone through countless storms. In fact, it had gone through that 1993 fire that happened at Eaton Canyon, followed by the, uh, the uh, storms that followed that. And, and if you looked at that house, you would have not found one crack on the wall, not one crack in the ceiling. There was not one place where the uh, windows uh, uh, had, had gotten out of alignment or the doors had gotten out of alignment because that house was built upon a solid bedrock foundation. On the other side, if you're looking to build a house on a hillside, at least I'm told, I'm not a, technical, a geotechnical engineer, I am told that often man-made filled areas that have been built to try to build a house on those places and, and get a lot of money, that when the rains come, often they settle in and the house begins to crack and often is destroyed. So what is the difference between the, the first man and the second man? You want to yell it out to me? That's about as loud as it usually is when our sanctuary is filled. <laughs> Children, you can yell it out. It's the foundation that the house is built upon. And that's what this story is about. When the difficulties come in this world, when the storms come, and they do come to all of our lives, it's not just the house whose foundation is important. 
It's the foundation of your life that determines whether you'll be able to come through this storm and more than that, live well in the midst of it. Now, to illustrate this, I want to take you to uh, an experiment that I've talked about often through my 12 to 13 years of being here at Lake Avenue Church as your senior pastor. It was an uh, experiment that was done by a scientist named Viktor Frankl back during World War II. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian neurologist and research psychiatrist, but he was also a Holocaust survivor. And when he was in the concentration camp, and actually he was in several of them, when he was going through the concentration camp, he decided to do what he does. As a scientist, he analyzed how all of his fellow people going through that concentration camp, how they handled the persecution that the Nazi persecutors were imposing upon them as, as the Nazis were trying to just destroy every part of their inner being. Um, he chronicles his findings in uh, a book that's called Man's Search for Meaning. I found one here, but I, I found the German title to show you, mostly because I thought maybe it would make you, wake you up to think, what on earth is that saying? But, but I think more importantly, because I love the title, the original title of his book, and the title is this, Trotzdem. You see that? Trotzdem. In spite of everything, sag ja zum Leben. Say yes to life. And what he was trying to say as a man who had gone through concentration camps uh, in World War II, he was saying, in spite of anything that happens in this world, there is a way to say yes to life and to affirm it. Because this is what he did. As he watched people going through those times of persecution in that camp with him, he saw several ways that they tried to handle it emotionally and mentally. What were they? I'll, I'll tell you a few. One, some tried to handle it by their own inner fortitude. They really felt like, ah, we have more inner strength than these Nazi captors, so they can do whatever they want. We'll be able to gut it out and be strong. They could do it with their own internal resources. A second group that he looked at focused on the revenge. Having read history, they knew that these evil movements didn't always last long. And eventually the dictators would come to their ruin. And so they focused on that, the revenge that they thought would come. They focused on the payback that these Nazis deserved, they felt. They, they envisioned themselves being participants in that payback. And they thought they would be able to find some sustenance in that. The third thing that he saw, and this happened, he saw more often than others. And, and I hear psychologists and counselors saying, this is what you should do in the midst of this pandemic, he told them, he said some people just tried to always envision the good rather than focusing on the persecution, the difficulty. So some of them, he said, were always focusing on the beautiful home that they had left that they, they thought will get to go back there again. They focused on the families that they had. They focused on their girlfriend or boyfriend that they hoped would be faithful to them and they could get back to. Many of them focused upon their jobs and their careers that they hoped would still be there when they got there, thinking that just focusing on the good, and this is a good thing to do, not to just dwell on the difficulty, but to focus on the good. But is it sufficient as a foundation for your life? Well, if you look at Frankl's book, he said he watched 
as one person after another of his fellow captors were worn down by their persecutors and gave in to utter hopelessness and despair. But, he said, there were a few. There were a few who were able to survive with their emotions intact. And he said this, they were those rare people who had at the core of their lives something that their Nazi persecutors could not take away. Those, he said, did not experience, he wrote, a disintegration of their personalities and a complete loss of hope. He wrote, so we find strength in grief, suffering, and injustice only when we have the hope that the pain and the loss we experience is not permanent and is not purposeless. Now, the point is this. As you build your life, you need, you need a foundation that evil enemies cannot tear down, that fires cannot burn down, that earthquakes cannot shake down, that windstorms cannot blow down, and might I add, that deadly viruses cannot break down. And I'll tell you, at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is declaring this, I am that foundation that you need at the core of your life. Are you with me here? In light of that, let's go back to those two men in Jesus' story and see what you might be able to learn from them. Let's start with that man who built his house on the sand. I, I, I look at him and I think he's like the majority of people that I've met in my life. Uh, people all over the world that I've been able to, to, to have time with, regardless of ethnicity or how old they were. It, it's just so normal for us as human beings to think the real place that we find meaning and happiness and contentment is in something, having something, achieving something in this world, that, that's, that's a natural thing. Many of those things are bad that we try to think, I've got to have that to be able to really live, but many of them are good. Many of them are good. Many, try, many of us try to find meaning in, in our career or completing our education or in the homes that we're able to have or in our health and our fitness and our appearance. Uh, so many of us are trying to find meaning just in our families and our marriages, and all those things are good things. I mean, we want to have careers that last. We want our marriages and families to be strong. We want our, our bodies to be healthy, don't we, and fit. But, but let's face it, as good as all those things are, none of them will last. An economic collapse will take away your job at times as it's happening in our day and, and your businesses, relationships, uh, rejection or rebellion of your children or unfaithfulness can absolutely destroy your relationships, our appearance and fitness. Let me tell you something. Old age will take care of that. Have you ever seen some of the pictures of me when I first came here as your, as your senior pastor and then you look at me now? It's kind of a sad thing to think about. It, it just happens. It just happens. And of course, ultimately, death takes all those things away. 
But I, but I want to be empathetic about so many people building their lives on those kinds of things. Because if you don't know the eternal God, what, what else are you going to live for? But here's the thing I want to say in this message. It's so easy to go to church or to watch a service like this and think, yeah, the world out there, they, they're building their house upon sand. But do you remember that Jesus wasn't talking about the church versus non-church person? He, he was talking about people who would have both looked like they were churchmen. That's what they would have looked like. They would have looked like Christians. So if he felt that there, too, there were people building their house upon the sands, I, I don't want to be naive. I think that here among us at Lake Avenue Church, the same thing will be true. We'll look really good on the outside, but inside, at the really core of our beings, will be something that simply cannot last, cannot be the foundation, so that when the pandemic comes or the storm comes, it will, it will just be destroyed. It will simply... Uh, disintegrate when it is there. Because let's face it, we too want to build our careers. It's not a bad thing. We too want to build our, our, our marriages and our families, right? We, we too want to, uh, to, to build our, our music programs and oh, so many things that we want to build. But the real problem is those good things could subtly move into becoming the main thing. They can move into the foundation so that we can't stand the thought of, of losing those things. And I'll tell you, when that happens, when the difficulties come in this world, those things will prove to be sand. Sometimes it takes a storm to open your eyes to what your life is really built upon. So, can I help you to identify what might potentially take the place of Jesus at the foundation of your life? Come up with two questions. They're related questions. I want to ask you this. I want you to try to answer them as best you can. Question number one. What is it that you feel you really have to have in order to be content? What is it that right now you feel like, I've got to have that right now? if I'm going to be happy, if I'm going to be content. And not unlike that question is the second. What is it that if it is lost or taken away would absolutely devastate you? Because much of that is happening during this pandemic. Seriously answer those two questions and you'll know what it is that you're building your life upon. You'll know what it is that is tempting to you, to put into the place of Jesus and that can never fully satisfy. Because in contrast to that, Jesus offers himself at the end of the Sermon on the Mount as the foundation upon which to build your life. What he asks you to do is to bring him into the core of your life by placing your faith in him. That, that means that you entrust this former life that you tried to build on your own, which includes a lot of failures and flaws and sins. You give them to him, asking him to cleanse you and to forgive you, and you find that he is willing to do it. He died so that that can happen. And then you take your present and your future and you entrust that to him by faith, saying, no longer what I just want to do in my own desires, but Lord, whatever you want me to do in the way you would have me to live. See, in that respect, what happens is that Jesus becomes both your Savior 
and the Lord of your life. Just notice how Jesus speaks about this. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, or the way my version says, and puts them into practice, that's the person who is like the man who built his house on the rock. Now, it's really important for you to understand clearly what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, here are all the things you have to do. Here are all my commands. Do, do, do this, and then you'll be able to be a Christian. No, Jesus and the entire New Testament knows there would be no hope for any of us because we cannot live in our own strength perfectly enough to earn our way to God. It says my good friend, and I'm hoping he's listening today, my fellow Lake Avenue church person, Daniel Fong, so often says to me, he says, in the Christian faith, being precedes doing. In the Christian faith, being precedes doing. So the way we become Christians, that we be, we become Christians, is not by doing. It is that we receive by faith what Jesus has done for us. We receive by faith Jesus as our Lord. And there are so many wonderful things that happen when you bring Jesus into the center of your life. One of the greatest gifts that he gives to you is what Pastor Matthew so powerfully preached about last week. He gives to you the best gift. The agathos is what Matthew called it. The Holy Spirit. And what happens when the Holy Spirit comes into your life is that through the word and within the community of your church, he begins to guide and direct you into the life that really lasts and brings contentment. And you begin to find something that's amazing, a new moral capability. Places where you say it can never be different. Addictions that you say can never be broken. He begins to set you free. First be through faith in Jesus. Then you'll have this longing because you will know he died for you and he loves you. That when he died for you, he didn't die to ruin your life. But as he says, to give you life to the full, no matter what happens. Or as Viktor Frankl talked about it, you can you can say yes to life. Whatever happens in this world, when Jesus is the foundation for he will never leave you and never forsake you. So let me say this too. I, I've come to see that the surest way to know that you have become a Christian, is that you'll begin to find an ever-growing, deeper longing to do whatever Jesus calls you to do. Are you with me there? When you have received him by, by faith because of only his mercy and his grace, you're going to want to please this one who loved you so much that he died for you. You'll know that following him won't wreck your life, it will give you life. Jesus becoming the foundation of your life is going to flow into a life that is in keeping with his teaching and is aligned really with, with the God in whose image we have been made. You remember at the middle of the sermon, he says, what I want you to do is to have your life become whole and complete, even perfect, as God in heaven is perfect, for you were made in his image. I want you to listen to how the Apostle Paul talks about this. It's a great text. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, 
I live by faith in the Son of God who loved him, me, and gave himself for me. Look at that text again. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But wait a minute, Paul. You're alive? Yes, but it's a different life. It's no longer a self-built life on sand. The life I now live, I live by faith in the eternal Son of God who is the foundation of everything else. At the end of this series of messages called Life Aligned, what does that life look like? That's what the entire Sermon on the Mount is all about. Jesus describing, when you brought me into the foundation of your life, this is what your life is going to begin to be built upon, what you're going to be able to put on top of that foundation. I encourage you to read through Matthew 5 through 7. Listen through Pastor Jeff's great sermons about this. He'll say things like this. It begins with your inner being. Uh, the Beatitudes, the first 13 verses of Matthew chapter 5, in which you want to develop those inner traits like those of Jesus himself, where you mourn what is evil. Do you remember him talking about that? Where what you long for is purity in your life. You long for what is right in this world. And that inner being then flows into so many different aspects of your life. It'll flow into the way you live your relationships so that when you come to verses 21 to 26, it will mean that whenever you have a broken relationship with someone, just as Jesus gave his life to bring us back to him, you'll take the initiative to go to that person to restore that relationship. It, it means that you're going to want to have open, honest, and trustworthy relationships. You'll speak honestly so that when people do business with you, <laughs> they'll know they can trust what you say. You can read about that in verses um, 27 to 32. You'll be faithful in those relationships. And all of that will continue to grow. Chapter 6 uh, You'll have an inner life of prayer, is what he says, that flows into an outer life of prayer, an inner life of wanting to give that flows into caring about people that God brings across your path. Whether anybody acknowledges that you're doing all these good things or not, you'll simply want to do them because Jesus gave his life for you. And when your life is built like that, you won't be worried when a storm comes or when a pandemic attacks because Whatever is taken away from you, this world, as he said, as Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 to 34, you haven't treasured up in your heart anything in this world anyway. So you'll love them when he gives them to you. You'll say, thank you, Jesus, for this wonderful gift. But if they're taken away, your life is still there. Because as Jesus said, things in this world will destroy all those temporary things. What did he say? Moths will get at some of them. Vermin will get others. Thieves will take others. And I think right now he would, he would include viruses. Don't you think? When you build your life upon Jesus, you will discover a foundation for your life that will never go away because Jesus promised he will never leave you or forsake you. Because he loves you. He died for you. And even that greatest enemy of death, we need to shout it out. He defeated that too. And promises eternal life who all, to all who have brought him into their lives. Oh, there's so much more I'd want to say, but I'll stop there except for this. There is this much-loved song that was written by Stuart Townend. And I'm sure many of you, if you're churchgoers, have sung this often, but today we're not going to sing it. 
I, I want you to just read it with me. And then each time that you sing it, especially the first stanza of this song, what I pray that it will be, will be a recommitment to bring Jesus into the foundation of your life, that he and he alone will be the Lord of your life, that good things that happen, you'll thank him for, and if they are taken away, you will still say yes to life. Uh, brothers and sisters, this has been my prayer, that as you go through these tough times, that whatever storms arise, and I don't know what's going to arise in your life, there will be things that you could never expect because we live in still an imperfect world. And no matter how long this pandemic continues, I pray that you will continue to have hope. No more than that, I pray that you will stand strong. Will you read this first stanza of In Christ Alone with me? So we'll put that up. I read, I want you to read it with me. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace when fears are stilled. When strivings cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. Will you read that last line one more time with me slowly? Here in the love of Christ, I stand. Now I'm going to ask Pastor Annie Neufeld to come and help us to think in fresh ways about the love of Christ as we think about his death in our place and as we receive communion together. Pastor Annie, come.